Welcome to the Steadfast Carlsbad podcast. This morning's message was taken out of our 10 a.m. service. Let's jump right in, and we hope you're encouraged. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Will you guys stand with me? We're going to do our reading today. It's going to be in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. We're going to read to the end of 14, so it won't be a long time, all right? Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes for all that I possess. And the tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. God, thank you for these strange upside-down glimpses of your kingdom, Lord. We know the, the world around us has been preaching a different, a different news, a different story, a different way of doing life. But Lord, right now we want to stop and we want to look at what your word says. And so we ask that you would be with us, Lord, that, you, that your words would come out of my mouth, Lord, that your word would just come to life for us. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So that, that right there is like one of my favorite sections of scripture. It's going to seem a little weird that we don't go over it immediately. Um, but I want to say this. Uh, most of us know somebody who's dissatisfied with the church or they've walked away from the church. I mean, we could do like a, we could raise our hands and stuff like that. And we could all say that we know probably a handful of people that have been walking away. There's this, there's a huge fad for deconstruction. There's, there's all these different things kind of happening in our world. There's tons of reasons that they're doing it. Um, but there's lots of people coming to Jesus and then walking away. And I, I think it's interesting. So today we'll be kind of be looking at that um, and kind of looking at what the Word says about some of these things. And hopefully we don't just put all the application for people that isn't here. Instead, we have something to take home for ourselves. But the first thing I kind of want to look at was a statistic. Um, in a study of future religion, they found in 1972, which was a long time ago, <laughs> that 90% of Americans identified as Christian. That's, that's pretty intense, 90%. Now we know 90% what that would actually look like. It wouldn't look like 90%, you know, that's Bible Belt sort of stuff. But, but it says that as of 2020, the number plummeted to 64%. That's a, that's a, big, that's a big drop. Now it says uh, that the projections, if it continues to go this way, and it kind of feels this way, if we're being honest, um, by, the, by the year 2070, America that will have 35%. Isn't that crazy? This, the, going from 90 to all the way to 35%. That's a huge drop. And not that big. That's 100 years. That's a huge drop. Now, we know people are coming to Jesus. People go to church. They visit churches. They attend for a while, but then they leave. Um, now, obviously, uh, if this message was about going to church, that would be preaching to the choir, right? Because <laughs> you guys are all here. Uh, so that's not really our focus today, but it's just something that I want us to observe because we live in a culture that is, is obsessed with um, these, these different 
aspects of it. Now, we, we know that in our world, we have a culture that's obsessed with getting ahead, um, being driven, being you know, the, the best of the best, and we, we see these things all around us, um, but you know, no wonder we're, we're watching our families struggle if we're always obsessed with what's best for us. Um, now, there's this, what, what I wanna address today is that there's this sort of poison in our thinking in the world around us, and if it's, if it's not addressed, then these numbers are just going to continue to make sense. That the church is, people are just going to continue to leave because people are coming to Jesus and they're leaving. Um, and that's, I believe it's because we live in a world that's obsessed with self. And I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I feel like it's pretty profound um, that, that uh, sin is a four-letter word. Have you heard this one? S-E-L-F. I put it there. It's nice and pretty. But uh, sin is a four-letter word. S-E-L-F. Now, one last statistic, and then we'll kind of jump into our, our text that we're going to be going over. Uh, this is the Cultural Research Center found in 2021 that the American Christ, of American Christians, 58% believed that if they were a good, a good enough person or they do enough good things that they could earn their way to heaven. Now, it seems like these are two random statistics, but these are of American Christians, and they're both around 60%. So in my mind, I kind of see a connection here, that we see people leaving the church, and we also see pe- that the, what people believe in the church is fundamentally wrong. That if they, they're good enough, if they do good, that they can earn their way to heaven. And I think that there's a connection here, and that's what we're going to explore today. So if you guys would, we're going to still be in Luke 18, but we're going to be looking at uh, verse 18. And I'll read to the end of 23. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've done since I was a youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still have one thing that you lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven, and come and follow me. But, this is the really sad part, but when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Now, have you guys ever read this story, and you're like, man, I wish I could see that in like the heavenly, you know, TiVo, where you get to watch it. Maybe in heaven we'll be able to watch this interaction. But it's interesting, because when we're looking at this young man, it says that he's a ruler. Now, because he's coming to Jesus with a religious question, there's kind of this inference that he's not a Roman. Um, or if he is a Roman, he's religious, right? So he's, he's coming to Jesus. He's considered a ruler. Um, he's asking a religious question. So kind of the idea is that maybe he's a part of the, the synagogue. He's a leader in the synagogue. Or maybe he is a part of the Sanhedrin, the leading council of Israel. Um, so this is kind of how what we're looking at here. Um, he's one of those guys. Now, it says that he's young. Now, this word young in the, you know, the original language could range from early 20s to about 40. So in your picture, uh, if he was a teenager and he was just you know, covered in jewelry or something, that's not going to work here. Um, but in your mind, so we can kind of paint the picture. This is a young man. He's a religious leader. He is in his early 20s to 40. Maybe we could say he's like 30. Maybe he's Jesus' age. He's you know same age. Um, and then here's another thing that's really interesting. When it says that he's rich, this isn't just the word for like, he's rich. This is the word for he's very rich. 
Um, so he's, he's a man of influence. He is a religious leader. He's, he's young. He has lots of money. Not just a, not, he's not just rich, but he's very rich. But did you notice? He feels like something's missing in his life. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but he's coming to Jesus because he feels there's something lacking. Now, I know that it's kind of bringing up these statistics in the past about how people are coming to church. People do come to church, but they just don't stay in the church. And I think we have to acknowledge, everybody has to acknowledge that there's something missing. Outside of the church, there's people trying to fill this void with everything and anything. I mean, we can see it if you go on social media, just next thing after another. If you go anywhere, um, it's just constantly, constantly people, they are acknowledging that something is missing inside of themselves, but we just try to fill it with the next thing. Now, this young man, having as much money as you could imagine, having power, prestige, having his age on his side, he's coming to Jesus because he feels something is lacking. He feels like something is missing in his heart. Um, but with all that, what, what is he, what is, how does this interaction with Jesus go? It's kind, of, it's kind of interesting when you look at it, because here he is, um, Jesus' response and their back and forth is really strange, if we're being honest. Because here he says, here, hey, good teacher. And then Jesus is just like, why do you call me good? Now, I know there's a tendency, like, we could spend a whole sermon here kind of looking at the deity of Christ. And the, as this, but it's funny because some people will use this as a, well, he's not God. And the people that this is God, um, obviously we think he's God. But we're not going to get into that stuff here. But what I think Jesus is doing, he's setting him up. Because Jesus, knowing all things, right, he... He looks, he's looking at the man, and he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then he doesn't give him a chance to respond, and he jumps right into it. You guys notice that? He doesn't say what, you know, he doesn't wait for a response from the young man. He just says, only God is good. And then he, he gives him a response. Um, he, gives a, he, he gives him a list, but it's not a list that we would often look at as a list of how we're saved. He begins to list off portions of the Ten Commandments. Um, which is interesting, right? Because he lists, he lists five here in the book of Luke. Um, but in the other Gospels, there's, uh, uh, there's other lists. So this is kind of interesting. We actually have a list on this one. Uh, we can pull, pull this one up. So of the three Gospels that mention this story, they all have the, the same five, but then Mark has another and Matthew has a number, another. Um, and you can see here, it's kind of made it easy to see. Um, but Mark adds, do not cheat, which I think is significant for later in the story. And then also Matthew adds, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, but here, here's what we understand. The writers are summarizing what Jesus told him. Because all of these commandments, they're in the same section of the Ten Commandments. You guys remember the Ten Commandments is split into two sections. Loving God and loving other people. And Jesus is pointing out the commandments to love other people. And so it's almost as if Jesus knows really where his heart is at because he begins to list all of the ones about loving other people and rather than listing all the ones about worshiping God he lists all the ones about loving other people it's almost as if uh, Jesus he's looking in he peers in and he's he's beginning to use the word to, to pierce in there but then of course what's his response um, you know he he responds well I've done all these things since I was a little kid I'm good check what do I do? Why do I feel empty? I've done all these things. I've been a good person. I've, I've, you know, I haven't been that horrible person I see down the road. Instead, he's looking at himself, and, and Jesus is expecting him to diagnose himself. Remember, when we look at 
the law, the law, Paul tells us in Galatians that the law was intended to be a tutor to point us to Jesus. When we see all those laws in the Old Testament, the intention wasn't to say, oh, yeah, I'm good enough. No, what, what ultimately happens is anybody who tries to follow the law, even to love your neighbor, right? Remember, Jesus summarizes, love God and love neighbor. What, even to love your neighbor, what happens is it fall, everybody falls short. The law that was inten- is intended to show us our need for a Savior. And what it tells us here is the rich young ruler isn't, isn't seeing that. Instead, what he's doing is he's seeing he's not giving himself a good look. He's not diagnosing himself. He sees the, the, this feeling within himself is not his problem, um, but something he needs. Um, and it's interesting because when he talks to Jesus, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's significant. He says, what should I do to, to gain this from you? So this interaction with Jesus is transactional. Are you guys, you guys kind of noticing a, a pattern of how he's thinking and how he's, I have all these things. That's, a, you know, the story tells us he has all these things. But when he comes to Jesus, it's all transactional. I mean, I'll, I'll give you this. Mark tells us that he gets on a, his knee when he talks to Jesus, which is, you know, humble. But then here he, he's there because he wants to get something from him. He isn't coming to Jesus just to have a casual conversation or because he's being honest with everything. He's just like, how can I obtain something from you? Um, And so Jesus kind of meets him on that level and shows him the law. And rather than seeing his imperfection and his need for Christ, because he already said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then he says, look at the law. Jesus was saying, hey, here's God in front of you. How are you doing with all this? And he says, no, I'm good. And he, he diagnoses himself as totally fine. And it's almost like he's saying, I'm healthy. I took my vitamins this morning. Well, why are you throwing up then? This, why, why are you having all the symptoms of somebody that's sick? You can't tell me that you're healthy. And so this is the kind of interaction that's going on here. Um, so this, this man seems to be the a caricature or, or a reflection of the parable that we read in the beginning, doesn't he? He seems to be that, that Pharisee that walks up and he's worshiping God and he says, I'm so glad I'm not like all these other sinners here. I'm so glad that I'm so righteous. <laughs> it's like there's no praise to God in that. He just he walks up and he's instead of instead of praying and giving glory to God, here he's he's really just bo- boistering himself in his prayer. And it seems that if we will, obviously scripture doesn't say this is who Jesus is talking about, but I think that the reason that this parable is put before this story is to remind us, um, to, to show us, here's a real-life example of somebody that we're talking about. And so, um, you know, men, this man is trusting himself for his righteousness. That's what we see in the parable. That's his description. Um, and they despise other people. That's why I think this, the, Jesus points out that all the commandments that are about loving your neighbor because from the parable, the, right, the people who think that they're righteous despise other people. I, I don't know why it is, but it's true. If you think that you're, if you think that you're righteous, there's this, this weird thing about pride. It makes you look at everybody else as small. It, it, when, when pride begins to puff you up, your eyes get so distorted, and you see people not the way that God made them, or not the way that God sees them, but pride just has a way of, of making us feel big, and making other people seem small. And of course, we know the warning about that in Scripture, that we're, not supposed to, we're supposed to see ourselves the way we are. 
We're supposed to see other people the way they are, as children and loved by God. Um, but here in verse 22, Jesus gives the final blow. So, you know, he points these things out. The response is, well, I've done all these things. Well, I don't know about that. Right? So verse 22, he says, so when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, oh, you still lack one thing. <laughs> this, is, this is awesome. I love that Jesus is just, he pulls out, you know, like that, you know, the road to Emmaus, it felt like their, heart, their hearts were pierced. Jesus is just pulling out the perfect, exact, and he's going to puncture right into the heart. And he says, go sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. Um, <laughs> and then he says, then you will have treasure. See, this man's perspective is, is skewed. He feels he has treasure because of his possessions, because of his status, because of the things that he's accomplished in life. But Jesus sees him as poor. He says, if you really want to have treasure, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to cut ties with all the things that are, that are weighing you down. Now, I, this isn't a message that says, hey, give all your money to, to the poor. Um, if the Lord convicts you to do that, praise God. But I think what's happening here, and we'll see later, that Jesus is cutting to the heart. And for this man, his possessions and what he owns and his status is all wrapped up in what he's done and what he's accomplished. And I'm making that inference because, remember, his initial interaction was, Jesus, what, what must I do? This man is putting a lot of faith in his ability to do things, to accomplish things, to, to achieve. He's, he's looking in himself, what do I do to gain heaven? Um, how good do I? I've already done the commandments. Give me another task. I'll climb a mountain, give however many sacrifices, and then we're good, and then I can live my life how I want. And Jesus cuts right to the heart, and he says, no, 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 you've got to get rid of all that junk that's in your heart. And it just so happens here, this man is tied to his worldly possessions. Um, and I think it's interesting here that he says, give to the poor, obviously, you know, to the people in need. But it's almost as if this is just as much painful for him. For somebody who's, who's worked to get ahead, he's, like we've seen in other parables, you know, the idea of, uh, work to, you can give to this person so that they'll owe you later. And, you know, and Jesus gives some of those parables and he says, oh, you were wise to do that and stuff. But here, this man is supposed to give his stuff to the poor because he could give it to his relatives. Right? He could give it to people who would owe him favors. There's lots of things that he could do with his wealth that would still kind of be in the same vein of selfishness. But instead, Jesus says, I want you to give, sell all your things and give it to the poor. Here's the thing about the poor. There is no way ever that these people will ever be able to repay him. That's, that's, I think that's why Jesus uses this so much. Because here we are, we always do everything to kind of get ahead, just a little bit. Even when we do nice things, there's this piece of us in the back of our mind that's like, I did a good thing. Have you guys, you guys ever experienced that? You know, like, and I, I've totally experienced that where like, I was kind to that homeless man. Hopefully there was a hidden camera somewhere. No. <laughs> uh, you, know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. Like even... Every kind thing that we do, no, I know that Christ transforms us. I'm speaking generally here. But every kind thing that we do, there's a piece of us in our flesh in the back that says, yeah, I just did a good thing. And we feel it and we attach to it. And obviously that's something that we fight against in our, in our, in our mind and that we're saying, no, I'm doing this. And, and this is why don't let your right hand know what your left is doing because all glory goes to God when we do something kind, when no one's watching and we can never be repaid. And so he's saying here, he says to this man, hey, I want you to take your possessions, sell all of them, give them to the poor so you can never be repaid, and then you'll have treasures, and you can come and follow me. And Jesus extends an invitation to him, even with this man whose heart is so bogged down. 
I think that's beautiful. That he doesn't say, he doesn't extend the, the invitation, after you've done these things, come talk to me and we'll see. You know, we can, maybe we can do a little interview process. No, he says, do, come follow me. But to follow me, you need to get rid of all the things, all the attachments to this world that are hindering your love for God. And he just gets really specific. He gets really in there. I think a lot of times that we, we miss what the definition of conviction is. Uh, sometimes we, we begin to feel that God is teaching us something or he's telling us something, um, and we begin to feel the weight of it. And here, let me just, just really quick, like in this story, Jesus gets very specific with what he wants him to do. Now, if you're, if you're experiencing conviction, I, I would just assume, and I, I've seen this to be true in my life, the conviction doesn't come in this broad sense. But conviction says, here's the next step. Because we know those stories and experiences when somebody who is new to the faith and they see the long road ahead of them, right? They're like, oh man, I need to change this about my life, this about my life, this about my life. Um, And they begin to see this long list of things they need to do to be in the club. And obviously we know that's not how this works at all. Because what happens is the spirit, when he begins to work in us, he shows us just the next step. Remember Psalm 119 about this, the... The word is a lamp unto our feet. That's the idea. And on a dark path, a lamp, you know, I know we have the big LEDs where you can see the whole world. But, um, you know, obviously them, they're carrying a lamp with them, a lantern. And as they take the next step, they can't see much more than the next step. And that's what, that's what God's word, that's what the Holy Spirit is working in us. Conviction is specific. Now, I think that, and I would venture to say, when we just feel the weight of everything kind of crashing on us and we don't have direction... Uh, one is we need to seek God for what it is, but it's also possible that's condemnation. Because we know what ultimately happens, condemnation, it, it drives us away from the Lord, but conviction brings us to the Lord. And so when we're, when we're walking and when we're growing and we're attempting to be more like Christ, like we're told to do, there will be this feeling, man, things need to change. And we know the Holy Spirit is working if there's a specific task ahead of us, because it would be burdensome. And that's not, the, that's not the spirit, to be burdensome. We say, you need to change everything all at once. Well, I feel powerless to do that. But yeah, you are powerless to do that because you're just one human being. But if the spirit is working, he'll say, I want you to do this. I want you to call this person, and I want you to talk to them. Or I want you to do this particular action. And, and for anybody, this is a tangent, but for anybody that's struggling with finding peace or looking to be thankful or to kind of feel that presence from God again, I would look back, what was, that, what was that thing that maybe you ignored or you did halfway? And return to that. And I believe that God will restore peace. I, I've seen that true to be in, in my life, where I'm like, man, I really got through that situation. I thought it was going to be more difficult. And then here the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, but you didn't do what I said. I'm like, oh, man. Now you got to redo it, and it's a little harder. But once you do, there's peace that comes upon you. Now, on the, on the contrary, if you feel like you're supposed to be doing everything all at once, that's condemnation that can, that can be heavy. Now, Jesus says his burden is, is easy. You know, like this is, this is a light thing. When we walk with Jesus, we have the Spirit with us, working with us. Now, condemnation does the opposite here. It says, you need to fix all these things all at once like a fire hydrant in your face. What are you going to do about it? And that feeling, we feel so discouraged when we see those things. Oh, man, I wish I was a better dad. Man, I wish I was a better husband. You know, like, and the list goes on and on. When I just feel that long list of weight, All it does is make me feel ashamed and walk away from the Lord. That's what it does. 
But you know what? It says, you know what? I want you to do this. I want you to take your wife on a date or something like that, something specific. And I feel the, the spirit working. Then that's when I know that, I, that I'm hearing from the Lord. That's, I could be totally wrong. We could just cut that out of the sermon. But anyway, um, <clears throat> with this, let's, let's, uh, let's keep moving in this. Um, I believe that Jesus is calling him to do a selfless act. Remember, we live in a world, so this is going to be applicable to us. We live in a world that cares all about ourselves. How do we get ahead? How do I, you know, how do I gain more influence? How do I this? How do I that? It's all about us, all about self. And here Jesus is calling the rich man to do a selfless act. You know, it, and, and for each of us, we have things that kind of hold on to our hearts that don't, that don't deserve our heart. And uh, I would say that God would call us to be selfless there and to, to uh, give our hearts back to the Lord. But here... Um, you know, this is, I, I felt this was necessary to say this. When I say, you know, that we need to be selfless, um, there's a tendency to say, okay, well, I won't think about myself, I'll think about my family. Um, and that's good, that's godly, but also, if our heart isn't transformed and the Holy Spirit isn't doing that, also can become an idol. Um, there's this idea if, if we, okay, I, I won't just think about myself so much, I'll try really hard, I'll just kind of put my attentions and focus towards my family, not saying this is wrong, but it can be wrong, gone to the wrong degree. Um, and we see this because uh, like a lot of like, you know, the conversations with dad and son, your football was never my dream, it was your dream, you know, those kind of conversations we see in the movies and stuff. This is just kind of a textbook example of somebody who might be being selfless, but really, it's another version of self, you know, and, and we can do this. We can turn our affections and then we can, we, we can still be selfishly acting, um, though we're not thinking about ourselves. Our family can be an extension of our, our self sometimes. Now, I want to tread lightly there. I'm not trying to tell you don't love your family, <laughs> um, but I am trying to ju just acknowledge that if we try to just make a shift and change the way that we think without the work of the Holy Spirit or without conviction, then what happens, we're just, we're trading idols out. So we want to be really mindful of that. And, uh, you know, I just want to point that whole thing out because this is, uh, this is a virus that needs to be uprooted from our heart. And if we think that we can just swap out symptoms, it's not going to work. It's just going to end up poisoning another area of our life. And we need healing. So with all these things, uh, this is interesting here that he just kind of walks right off the pages of Scripture. Doesn't that kind of break your heart a little bit? Here, this, this young man, he just, he just walks he just walks away, and he's sad. He has this, this, his countenance has fallen, he just, and he just walks away. He doesn't rebuttal to Jesus. He doesn't say, okay, I'll do it, like we want him to. In a lot of ways, he responds the way we do when we're convicted, right? Um, he walks away. Um, and this is interesting. Some people have theorized that this, uh, this rich ruler is actually Joseph of, of uh, Arimathea. Um, this is kind of an interesting little thing. Actually, I have a Thing, if we have that slide, um, because do we? Do they have a slide? Oh, sorry, we might not have a slide. <laughs> um, but the, the reason that this is significant is because he's the only person in the Gospels that's also called a rich ruler. Um, so some people theorize that uh, Joseph of Arimathea is this rich young ruler. And here's what's cool about this. This is the only reason I'm bringing this up, because there's no way to know if this is true. It's just those two words been put together. It's the only other place. Um, is that... Joseph of Arimathea is the one who gives his tomb to Jesus. The rich ruler who gives his tomb to this poor man uh, dying of execution. So if this is the case, which is a speculation, and I hope this is true, um, 
that here he does, he does give to the poor. Yeah, maybe it's not everything, but here he gives this, uh, yeah, there it is, it's the garden tomb, right? You know, he, he gives his part of his possessions to Jesus, which is interesting, who is a poor man, if you didn't know. Um, but yeah, so that's a picture. You can go there in Israel. We don't know if that's the actual one, but it's a good possibility. Um, all right, so just kind of recap on here. We're going to go into one more little story. Uh, this man is expecting to gain something from Jesus. He is approaching him, what should I do? He's relying on his own abilities, his own competencies. He's saying, okay, give me a checklist. I'll follow the checklist. He is in no way, shape, or form depending on God. He's just, he's just looking for a way to do this himself. Hey, can you give me a map to the place I need to go? We know this isn't the gospel. We know this is totally the opposite of what we want. Um, and we can see... I, I would venture to say that the statistics that we looked at about people coming to Jesus, coming to church, and then walking away, I would say that this is probably a similar diagnosis. People are coming to Jesus, they're coming to church, and they're expecting to gain something from God. Now, obviously, we know God gives tons of blessings, and there's those sort of things. But if they're coming, if we, let's not talk about people who aren't here, if we are coming to Jesus, if we're coming to, we'll just say the church, but I mean Jesus, if we're coming here with the purpose of how can I gain, how can I get ahead, this is dangerous, because this is exactly what the rich young ruler does. He's approaching God, saying, okay, I've done this list, give me another list, and we can be on our way, and then we'll be cool. I know we don't think in terms like that, but oftentimes we, we see Sunday morning as a checklist, don't we? Part of the checklist. We say, oh, is that person a believer? Oh, well, you know, I haven't heard them say a bad word, and they go to church on Sundays. Don't we create a list pretty immediately when we're trying to gauge if somebody's a believer in Jesus? We create lists really quick, right? We say, oh, they even serve on Sundays. You know, of course, they're a mega believer, right? <laughs> they're, they're a super saint or however you want to say it. We create lists, and, and I, I know judging fruit is a hard thing. You know, there's like, well, they were kind to me once. Does that count? You know, <laughs> judging fruit is hard, so I'm not trying to speak into that. But I just want us to acknowledge that we do create lists. We create lists for other people, and I think a lot of times subconsciously we create lists for ourselves when approaching God. Um, you know, I, I really wasn't into it. I didn't raise my hands during worship today. How am I doing with God? You know, we create these things, these walls, these barriers that shouldn't be there. And I, I think um, oftentimes we treat God and we treat these do's and don'ts as almost like this divine fire insurance. You know, like this, okay, I, I did what I was supposed to do. Me and God are good. You know, I, I got my fire insurance for the end of time or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but here's the question. How is it we are supposed to approach God? I mean, that's the question, right? We just looked at how not to. The question is, how do we do this? And um, we're going to look at Luke 19. Luke 19, starting in verse 2. Um, and once again, I just want to, if you will, your focus, will you shift? Just remember that parable we did. There was the Pharisee. He was like, oh, praise God, I'm not like a sinner, right? And then here we have this other person who's just in the back, and he won't even look up because he, he's, he feels a certain way. Now, God isn't saying you should stay shameful, but, he's, but there's an attitude and a posture that this tax collector in the back of the, back of the room has towards God, and he says, that's the posture of heart I'm looking for. Now, I believe that Luke is intentionally bringing out two characters that resemble this parable. And here, let's look at the second one. You guys are familiar with him. His name is Zacchaeus. He's a wee man, if you have the King James Version. Uh, 
man, I thought that was funny. Anyway, so um, <clears throat> verse 2, I'm going to read to the end of 8, and then we'll, we'll kind of break it down. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector. He was rich, and he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was a, a man of short stature. So he ran ahead, and he climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up, and he saw him, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste, and he came down, received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with this man who is a sinner. Here, so here, here's an example of another man, right? He is also a rich ruler. Zacchaeus is also a rich ruler. You see, this is interesting how, how uh, the stories are, are here next to each other for us to learn. Because there's two totally different responses. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, they resemble the parable that Jesus said. So this, he's, of course, he's a, he's a short man. We don't know how short that is, but it's apparently important to the story because he needs to actually climb a tree to even see Jesus. The crowd is too, too much for him. So you can see that there's a, there's a physical uh, disability for him to be able to approach Jesus. And so he said, man, I just want to see what Jesus is all about. And so he runs ahead. He says, okay, I think he's hidden that way. I know he's going, I think he's going to Jericho, right, in the story. So I know he's going to Jericho, so I'm just going to run ahead on the path. I'm going to find a big tree. I'm going to climb to the top and out just to see Jesus. And then, uh, of course, you know, as a tax collector, there's another element here. One is he's not able to just go in and see Jesus because uh, he's, because he's uh, small and he's unable to kind of get through the crowd. But the second is that he feels shameful that he's a tax collector. I mean, he... What's the response? The second Jesus gives him any attention, what's the crowd's response? Oh, come on, this guy? You know, like they, they look at Zacchaeus and they're like, man, you're not worthy of Jesus' attention. That's, the, that's like the first thing they say. They start to complain that Jesus gave him any day at all, any time at all. Um, but here, what we can see is that, I want to point this out, Zacchaeus also feels something is missing. Here's another rich young, we don't know if he's young, it doesn't say that. So another rich ruler, and he also feels something is missing in his life. And once again, we can all acknowledge that without Jesus, we'll always experience something missing in our life. Because that peace that belongs there, it's gone if, if Christ isn't there. So we see this, this man, he knows that his actions, the things that he's chosen to do as a, as a tax collector, that he's far from God. And so he just wants, to, he just wants a glimpse of Jesus. He just wants to see him walk by. He's not asking for anything from Jesus. He's not asking for a list of do's and don'ts. He just wants to see him. Man, I've heard so much about him. He sounds like the answer to my problem. I just want to catch a glimpse of him. So he runs ahead, and, and like a child, when's the last time you climbed a tree? Unless you were trying to get your child down, right? When's the last time you climbed a tree? It's been a long time, huh? Even for me, and I, I, don't, feel, I don't feel that old, but uh, I haven't climbed a tree in a while. And here's the thing. Zacchaeus climbs a tree like a child would. And he's just hanging out in the tree, just waiting for Jesus to pass by. I just want to see him. It's this beautiful thing. He just wants to catch a glimpse. But then, of course, the beautiful thing, this is why we love Jesus so much. What does Jesus do? He gets under the tree, and he looks, and he says, hey, you, I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to stay at your house tonight. Also kind of sounds like kids. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to my mom. I'm going to stay at your house tonight. You know, <laughs> but, you know he, he sees him, and he, he looks at him, and he says, hey, tonight I'm, I'm staying at your house. 
<laughs> Isn't that awesome? Jesus is like, he invites himself over, which I know that's not kosher to do nowadays, but he did do that, and it was pretty cool. He's like, I'm going to stay at your house. What are you cooking? Um, <laughs> anyways, so, but this is, this is a hospitality on another level <laughs> to invite yourself over. Uh, but here he, he invites himself over to Zacchaeus's place. And isn't this crazy, the kind of honor that God is bringing to this dishonorable man? It, of all the people, I mean, there's crowds following Jesus. They all just want to talk to him. They all want to hear from him. They all want to be known as somebody who talked to Jesus. You know, he's the miracle worker. He's the, at the time, there's like, he's the son of David. You know, there's like all this stuff going around. And here, Jesus, who does he pick to dine with? The man hiding in a tree, just trying to catch a glimpse of him. The, the man ostracized and out, outed by society. The man who the second he gives his attention to, the whole, the whole group is like, what are you doing, Jesus? Look, you're pretty great, but him? Are you sure you picked the right one? Um, and so this is interesting here because um, I want to kind of examine his response because it's, it is pretty interesting. So he's in the tree, um, and then they say to him, I think this is verse 4, right? Uh, no, verse 4, he says, he's going to be, oh, yeah, yeah. He has gone to be a guest with the man who is a sinner. So they, they actually, they don't say anything about Zacchaeus. They're just like, what is God, you know, what is Jesus doing? He's going to go eat with this sinner. Even in his world, he was, he was rejected. Um, but then, this is what we want to look at, verse 5. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, so he's looking right at Jesus. He doesn't care what the crowd's saying, but he's like, we do need to talk about this. Lord, look, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken any from, from anyone by false accusation, I will restore it fourfold. So this is, this is just a little side note. I think this is maybe why Mark points out the, the commandments not to cheat in the previous story. Um, because this idea of the, the rich man kind of cheating to get ahead. Um, but he says here, oh, look, I will pay back half of what I've taken. You know, as a tax collector, he has this kind of right to take a little bit more off the top. To, to his little portion, um, and then beyond that, he he can, um, you know, he can extort. He can do these different things, and they often would to get ahead to get money. And he says, anything I've stolen, I'll give back fourfold. That's more than half of his money. I'm sure all his money's gone at this point. Isn't this crazy that here we have two rich rulers, and they both approach Jesus in very different ways. And Jesus doesn't even tell Zacchaeus he needs to give all his money away. And this, once again, is pointing to that Jesus didn't care about money. We know he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. You know, like, he, Jesus isn't concerned about, hey, I'm actually poor. Maybe you should donate to me. You know, that's not what he's doing at all. He could care less about the money. He cares about the heart. And he knew for the, the rich young ruler that he needed to get rid of his money because it had a death grip on his heart. But here's Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus isn't concerned about what to do and all these things. He just wants to see Jesus. And can you see the work of the Spirit in him? You know what? What does he do? He says, I need to make better what I've, what I've done wrong. I need to re repay the people I've stolen from, and I will I'm going to restore the money. And he looks to Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask him to do this. He just responds because of, because of Jesus. Now, when we're looking at these stories, it's going to be really easy because I think a lot of times we're looking like the rich, wrong, oh my gosh, rich, young ruler, often for, okay, what do I do? What is it? Tell me what to do and I'll do it. 
rather than just looking to Jesus. You see, the, the Zacchaeus, as he engages in a relationship with Jesus, there's a change that happens in him. He wants to be, he, he, he feels honor given to him. He's a dishonorable. There's no way to gain honor if you're dishonorable unless someone bestows it on you. And Jesus says, tonight, I'm going to be a guest at your house. And that's an honorable thing. And he bestows honor on him. And you know what happens? His heart begins to, to flood. And he begins to, to just do what the Spirit would. But before, remember, this other man was trusting in the law, the old covenant. He says, give me a list. And Jesus says, give it all away. But here, here's the new covenant. Here's this relationship with Jesus doing the same thing, but by the work of the Spirit. Here, this man says, you know what? I need to, I need to get rid of it because I, just wanna, I, I don't want anything to hinder my relationship with Jesus. So I want to get rid of it because, because I want to be free and I want to be with God. Whereas the other one says, ah, oh, it's just another checkbox. And that one's a really hard checkbox. The other ones are easy. And so this is a, this is a beautiful thing here because Jesus never asked him to give his money because he's concerned about the heart. Um, he even vows to pay back fourfold, which is very generous. Um, and, of course, we can see the parallels here between the old covenant, the way things were, and now the way things are by the, work, by the work of the Spirit and the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Now, once again, we're looking at this. The law was intended to be a tutor for us, but now we have the Spirit. The Spirit now lives in us, and now we have conviction and guidance from him and and we we can have peace from god did you notice here that it says that um specifically i'll read what's the word um and he looked and he saw him and he received him joyfully aren't these totally the opposite of the last guy the the rich young ruler it said he walked away and his face was he was just man i'm so bummed out how could i ever but this man, he receives Jesus joyfully. Um, now, we can acknowledge that in our lives, if we're, trying to, if we're trying to get closer to God or whatever it is, and we keep approaching God with our lists or things, give me something to do, it'll always be discouraging. It'll always feel miles away. But if instead, I, I think here, here's what we can learn. But if instead of our affections and our attention are given to Jesus, the, the Spirit will naturally work within us. And that we don't have to feel condemned because the Spirit is at work within us, making us into the image of Christ. Now, here's kind of the application point, if there hasn't been one already. Uh, here's the question. Which man are you? I wish I didn't have to ask that question. But I needed it. This morning, I was getting ready, and I was like, man, I need to ask myself that question. Which one? Because, you know, I'm totally honest. I hope this, um, I, I hope this sermon is just a a bomb, and it's awesome, right? Yeah, you know, these are, this is my prayer, and I'm like, man, I sound a lot like a Pharisee that's like, man, because here, my prayer, my prayer wasn't about, man, how, how can Jesus be glorified? What's my prayer? How can I be glorified, right? This is the honest truth, and we do this, and they're so masked and layered, and we're like, man, I, I was praying this morning, and it sounds godly, but was I praying for anything God wanted? No, no. <laughs> But instead, you know, how can God be glorified in the, in the things around it? Which man are you? How do you approach God? And you might have this one down pat, and you should have taught this sermon. But um, that really, what is the condition of your heart? Where, where are you with this? Um, do, you, do you also acknowledge that something is missing? I mean, I think that it's clear. We all kind of have to. But then we have to, so when we acknowledge that we feel something is missing, what are we filling it with? There's a vacuum. 
Something has to go there. And if we haven't already acknowledged that there's a hole and now we're, and Jesus is filling it, then you have to really ask yourself, what is filling that hole? Because we often do it with everything. With the, the same with the rich young ruler, with the possessions, with prestige, uh, with, you know, or being known for this or that. We do this. Or even our family, like we kind of mentioned. What are we filling this hole with? Is it more activity? Is it more doing? Is it more trying? Is it doing better? Um, or is it surrender? This is, here's the other man. Here's the other man. He's, he's even surrendered to the fact that he thinks that Jesus would have nothing to do with him. He says, I know who I am. And I'm lucky enough to just see him from bird's eye view. But then here Jesus, he says, no, no, that's what I'm looking for. And he calls to him. And, he, and then, of course, Zacchaeus responds. Um, now, we have to face our inability to save ourselves before we can enter into that relationship with Jesus. Before we can have the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we have to first come to the end of ourselves. We have to acknowledge that there's nothing, no list, no dues, no being better. It doesn't work. It doesn't matter if you modify your behavior. You're not, it's not better. You're just shifting the symptoms around. You have to acknowledge there's nothing you can do. And when you come to the end of your rope, that's when we begin to trust Jesus. That's it. That's, that's the place that we find. That's when we enter into this relationship. We can't enter into the relationship with Jesus if we're still holding on to everything ourselves. We can't do it. It's impossible. Now, self is going to tell us we can do this. I got this. I, you know, autonomy's king where we are, right? Like, I can do this. This is, this is me. I can handle it. And Jesus says, that's great, but you can't do that in my kingdom because I do the things in the kingdom, and you're just, you're just a part of my family. I take care of it here. Now, we have to acknowledge this fundamental this, this sin in our thinking, this fundamental error that we have in our, our decision to do everything ourselves. And we have to acknowledge it. We have to repent of it. And at that place is where we begin to enter into that relationship with Jesus. Um, so we have to go from being self-saturated to Christ-saturated. Now, even here we see this man. He, look, he, he looks at Jesus, and then he responds and that's what we want to do. We want to look to Jesus, and then Jesus will speak to us, and then, then we respond. And that's, the, that's how this works. That's what faith is. We look to Jesus, he speaks to us, and we respond. It's, it, the other way didn't, didn't work that well. But here, this, there's one little verse here that I want us to read. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. And this is from the New Living Translation, because I like this one. Um, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take any credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that you've done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Can you see the, the story of Zacchaeus in this, this verse here? Here he engages with Jesus and he's like, here, take my money. I'll pay even more. You see the good works that were prepared beforehand from him? Here, this is, this is the salvation, and this is what God wants to do in us. So if you're struggling to, to follow Jesus, I would encourage you to, to fix your gaze away from what, you're, what you do and, who you, and all, who you are and all this stuff, and just look to Jesus. And then he will speak to you, and then when he speaks to you, your job is to respond. Now, when we respond, it's the same. We surrender. Zacchaeus, he didn't put up a fight. He didn't say these things. We just surrender. We acknowledge, oh man, there's nothing I can do to deserve this, but praise God, he's speaking to me. Yes, you can dine with me tonight. I know I'm not worthy. Yes, I'm a sinner, but praise God, we're going to eat dinner tonight. And I would encourage you the same response. 
we'll stop looking to get things from God and let's look just at God. Let's look to him. He's, he's, he is the, the, should be the center of our affections, not the blessings he gives. Those are great. But they also can become an idol in our life. So let's pray. And uh, I would encourage you to just do, do some work before the Lord. Um, let's just examine our hearts. Are there things that, that we're doing or think that, that God will somehow love us more or care about us more if we're doing? Or is there a list that we have? And let's lay it before the Lord and just put our affections just on Jesus. Lord, here we are. We're, we were just, we're before you in your presence, Lord. We know that your affection is towards us. We know that you love us. We know these things because you've told us and you've made it abundantly clear. But somehow our flesh has just made things difficult. We're still trying to do things in our own strength. We're still trying to just be better and do do good all by ourselves, but we ask that you would you remove that sin from us, Lord. Lord, you can convict our hearts and transform us, Lord. And we surrender to you. We acknowledge that none of this works unless we come to the end of our rope. And we look to you, God. And we ask that you would change us, transform us, make us into your image, Lord. That good works would flow out, not from our doing, but from your doing, from your grace, Lord. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to join us in person, head over to steadfastcarlsbad.com for more info. God bless.